Welcome to the Sisters Community Church Podcast. Behold, what manner of love the Father has lavished on us. We hear those words, but do we really let it sink in? Well, today, Pastor Steve Stratus continues our series in 1 John. Let's listen. So we've been on a journey together, Ryan and I, and, uh, and uh, I think, you know, as I listened and watched uh, Ryan last Sunday, I felt a little bad for him as he felt like he was getting all these really long, involved passages. But I only felt bad for about a second. Um, but I, I came to the realization as he and I tried to figure out the passages, um, sometimes you get into this uh, mindset of teacher and you want to teach something, and uh, you realize when you get there, there's way more in the passage than you could even communicate in one setting. And, uh, and for that matter, sometimes as teachers, we can be more teacher-oriented than learner-oriented. And we're more concerned about what we do and what we get through than what you might grasp. So uh, I think Ryan and I need to probably rethink some of that. And, but uh, this morning, I, I want us... It, it was almost like there's just one verse I want us to look at. But I thought I really couldn't do that to Ryan. Um, and, uh, but the beauty of it is this. As we've been looking at uh, 1 John, let me just give us a little summary. So John writes this in 1 John chapter 1, verses 1 through 4, and he tells us why he writes it. He says, I write it so that your joy can be full. In the midst of all the trials and struggles and difficulties and insanity of our world, John writes, in the midst of all of that, even in our day, so that our joy can be full. That we can have joy in the midst of all the, the insanity. And that he tells us in those first verses how we can have that joy. And he says, the way that we're going to have a complete joy is if we stay in fellowship with the Father and the Son through the Spirit. And so our fellowship with God is why John writes, because in that fellowship, we have a complete joy. And he tells us that this fellowship, in these first four verses, come as a result of the objective reality that John and the apostles experienced in the fact that they walked with Jesus. They touched him. They talked with him. They saw him. They heard him. And it changed their life. And that reality is what he wants to share with us in the words that he writes so that we can have a full joy and we can have fellowship with God. And so as we've been walking through this book, we saw that in order for our fellowship with God to grow, we need to recognize that there are ways that that happens, and we've called them the three tests. We said there was a moral test or a test of conscience or a test of obedience, and as we thought about that test of obedience. It comes as a result of honoring truth and honoring scripture and letting the principle scripture drive our behavior. And so we ask the question, if we were to do a diagnostic on the moral test or the obedience to scripture test, 
between 1 and 10, where would you be? And whatever that number is, what will you do this week to notch it up a little bit? Because not just so that you can experience being a good person, but so that you can grow in intimacy with that fellowship. And then we saw in verses uh, 7 through 11, chapter 2, the relational test. Do we really love one another? I mean, do we love people when they're not lovable? Do we love people who rub us the wrong way? Do at times we love people after the argument? Do we understand what it means to love one another? And again, that love isn't just something we pull out of the air. That love is based on the principle of God so loving the world that he gave his only begotten son. So our behavior follows our belief. And so, again, we give ourselves a diagnostic test. How are we doing when it comes to loving one another? Because the answer to that question determines the intimacy of our fellowship. And then the third one was the doctrinal test. And the whole reality of how are we viewing Christ, specifically Christ that is God in the flesh, that is the Son of God becoming a Son of Man so that sons of men could become sons of God. And that we could begin to live in union with Christ and begin to enjoy fellowship with God and a full joy. And then this morning I want to talk to us about this transition because what he does in this verse, in in chapter 2 and in verse uh, 29, he says, as he makes a transition from 2 to chapter 3, he says, if you know that he is righteous... You know that everyone who does what is right has been born of him. And sometimes we get caught up in the word righteous and simply think he's talking about the ethics or the obedience or the keeping of the scripture. But righteousness in scripture is not only a righteousness that comes as living out the principle, but it's also a righteousness that comes as being rightly related to God and to each other. And so John has given us that whole sense of this is what I'm trying to get at, and he's going to do it again. But I want us to continue to be reminded of the fact that what John is trying to get us to understand is that God wants to be in fellowship with us. And he wants our joy to be full And as we go back to the Old Testament, Nehemiah 8.10, it says, the joy of the Lord is our strength. There's something beautiful about it. So let's go to our passage this morning, and let me read uh, 1 John chapter 3. I'm just going to read these first three verses. Sorry, Ryan. Um, It says, see what great love the Father has lavished on us, that we should be called children of God. And that is what we are. The reason the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Dear friends, now we are children of God. And what we will be has not yet been made known. But we know that when Christ appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. All who have this hope in him purify themselves just as he is pure. Let's pray. Father, as we look at this scripture, I I pray this morning that we would just recognize 
how much you desire for us to not only live in joy, but to live in the intimacy of fellowship with you. And Father, we recognize that there is a beauty to what John is saying that captures our imagination, captures our heart, so that we can take the objective truth of Scripture, all that we might know intellectually, and let it pass down through our head into our heart and grab us emotionally so that we might truly be a people who understand that balance of grace and truth and live it out for the world to see. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. So I want you to notice, see this first verse, chapter 3, verse 1. It says, see what great love the Father has lavished on us. And here's where the English translation sort of loses some of the power of it. The King James says, behold what great love. The word behold is, is an idiom. Another way you might say it is, what planet is this love from? It's kind of like, it's an idiom so that when we say it's raining cats and dogs, John is saying, what planet is this love from? Where did it come from? Behold. And when he says, it is lavished upon us, the King James uses the word bestowed, and the word lavish is a love that is given to us in a moment of time. It's a specific love that we experience as if it was an event. It's similar to getting married when we say I do. And the reality of that statement is the reality of bestowing love upon the one that we're embracing as husband or wife. And so John is again calling us to an understanding of this moment in which we have this experience with God. This sense of, oh my goodness, he loves me like that. Amazing love. The reason I say that is because it's so important that we come to the understanding that John is not just asking us to simply understand all that he's saying. He's asking us to embrace it in a moment of time so that we experience the beauty of this love that God has given. Because we know that God so loved the world, right? And the reality is that everybody in this world, from the perspective of creation, is a child of God. But not everybody in this world is a child of God that experiences intimacy with the Father. So while we recognize that Jesus died for the whole world and salvation is made available to each and every one, not each and every one will accept the salvation that is given to them. And it is through the new birth. It's not about going to church, and you've heard me say this over and over again. It's about being born again. It's about that moment in time when you say, in whatever vernacular you might say it, Behold, he loves me. I believe it. I receive it. And to them gives he the power to become the sons of God. And so as we think about the reality of what John is calling us to, he's calling us to that moment. He's calling us to that experience. He's calling us to the truth of what Christ has done being translated into the receptivity of our heart and our life. So it's not just the truth. It becomes a lifestyle. And so he says, behold, and, you, and it's almost like John, if, you could, if I could put it this way, as John has been writing this letter, it's like at this moment in time, John has one of those moments. 
And it's not just the moment of the new birth. I would trust that all of us, some of us, at different times, some of the time, would have moments where we go, oh my goodness. Maybe you set out to read the Bible and you get through the first verse and you can't go any farther because God has just said something to you and you say, oh, behold. It becomes a reality to us that takes it out of the realm of religion into the realm of relationship and we're walking with Christ fresh and new. And that's why John calls us to these tests because we need to grow in our relationship with God because fellowship with God is what enables us to have a full joy that enables us to live victorious in this world as we remember who we are. You probably heard at one time in your life, maybe from a parent, maybe you've said it to your kids, McKibben, remember who you are, Right? Remember whose child you are. Remember your family name. And John is saying that to us. And it's interesting, there's a story written by Eusebius. He's a historian at the time of John, and he tells a story about John. Remember, John is about 85 years old now. So if not only soaked in the relationship that he had with Christ, but soaked in Scripture and soaked in in that relationship of wisdom. But the, the story goes somewhat like this. John had won a young man to Christ, and he started to disciple him. And as he was discipling him and communicating to him, the very same thing he's probably communicating to us, he was called to go on a trip. And so he said to the bishop of the town, listen, I'm discipling this young man, and I want you to watch over him. Because this young man came out of a rough crowd and John was working on him and he was developing and changing him. And so John left him in the, in the charge of the bishop and John went away and then he came back. And when he came back, he said to the bishop, um, where's so-and-so? And the bishop said, he's dead. And John said, what do you mean dead? He said, I mean dead to God. He left And he went back to his old crowd. He went back into the mountains. He went back to the life of robbing and stealing and carrying on. And John ripped his clothes. And he began to grieve and moan and weep over this young man's life. And so he said, I think I know where he is, John said. And so John got clothed. He got a horse and he went up. And where he went up to was this place in this valley where all of these robbers were. And if you were caught there, it was very possible for your life to be taken. So John went, and these guys saw him from cliffs, and they came down, and they grabbed him. And John said, I came here on purpose. I've come to see so-and-so. And And he says, "If, if it means my death, I'm ready. Where is he? And so as the leaders came This young man was one of those leaders, and when he saw John, he dropped his sword, he got off his horse, and he started running for the mountain. He didn't want to see John, and John ran after him, and he finally, as he was running after him, got close enough to say, please come back, I'll die for you, I'll give my life for you, even as Jesus has given his life for us, don't forsake what God has done for you. And the man just stopped in his tracks and he turned and he started to weep. And John put his arms around him and says, my son, I love you. Please return with me. There is no life other than the life that God has promised you. And the young man came back with John. And when I read that story, it's it's somewhat of the story like, 
Who has the chutzpah to do that? To go to a place that is well aware of the fact that he might lose his life. That's John. And that's what John is saying. Behold, what great love the Father has lavished upon us that we would be called sons of God. And the world doesn't know who we are because the world didn't recognize him. But we know who we are. And so when John has this moment, again, my question is, have you ever had that moment as you've delved into or spent time with God and maybe it's those moments where you're meditating on God's word or reading God's word? Again, the scripture is there as a principle to cause our joy to be full. Even Jesus said, you'll know the word and it will bring you joy. So it's not a matter of just coming to church. And if we were to go back to the diagnostic, we would have to say, how much time do you spend alone with the God who calls John to behold? Do you spend some time with him? Do you walk with him? Do you talk with him? Do you allow him to work in your life? Do you know who you are? Do you remember you belong to him? So John starts his whole next section with wanting us to understand the beauty of the love that God has bestowed upon him in that moment. And I pray for all of us that we have lots of those moments. But those moments come like any good relationship because we're in relationship. And in that relationship, we change. I pray that in our relationship with one another, we're being changed. Iron sharpens iron. That we're being transformed. That we're holding one another to the test. Because we recognize there's nothing we desire more than fellowship with God. Intimacy with God. And there's such a big difference between that reality. And let me read something to you that uh, one of the commentary said, he said, there is an infinite difference between religious obedience to a divine being or divine rule and soul knowledge of the Father's heart. When we know the Father's delight, something happens to us, something that we cannot do to ourselves, something far deeper than the ability to do right. We are quickened with hope. We say, behold, In seeing the Father's true face, our souls are baptized with an unearthly assurance, with the security and confidence not of this world. With this assurance comes an awakening, and with the awakening comes freedom. Freedom to stand up, freedom to walk, freedom to take risks, and freedom to venture forth. Because, I want you to think about this, Sin is about losing our right minds. When we don't think clearly about who God is, how he cares for us, oh, what great love he's lavished upon us, our mind becomes darkened, and in that darkness, we fall prey to the whispers of the enemy, and we fall prey to this performance religion that we're so good at trying to live out, and our life becomes one of debt, not one of grace, and we lose sight of the behold. 
I mean, think about it. Most of you worked. Friday's payday. How many, when you got to Friday and, they, and you were given your check, you said, behold, what manner of love the Father has given to us. But unfortunately, sometimes we live out our Christianity that way. We, we try to put God in debt to us. We do all the right things, the right rules, and then we expect the right response from God. But God wants us to know that what God wants to lavish upon us is not dependent upon what we've done, but it's dependent upon who he is and what he's done. And when that love begins to get inside of us, and we, like Paul say, we're constrained by love, we enter into meditating and reading and praying and loving God, and all of a sudden, we have those moments. And so John wants us to start off and and truly understand so that this truth moves us into this place. We all know the difference, right? There are moments when you have a child, and, and maybe you've experienced that when you were a kid. Your, your father was your father. That was your position, and I think that's a little bit of what John is trying to tell us. This grace that has been given to us moves us from separation from God to a position of standing with God and being in the family of God. And it's like a parent who's walking down the road with this child, and and they're just walking down the road. That child belongs to that father. But when that father picks up that child and puts his arms around her and kisses her on the neck and says, I really love you, that event changes that child's perception. And that's what God is wanting us to understand. And that's what John is trying to communicate to us in this reality so that we can know him. We can know him and not only know him, but we can know this mark of love that he bestows upon us because that's who he is. So what does he do? He takes us to the second verse. And, 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 and it's almost like in those moments, you, you've heard me mention before the, the movie, The Fisher King. If you've never seen that movie, you need to see it. Uh, I would see it just for this one scene in the movie um, it, because when Robin Williams takes out Amanda Plummer and she's this nerdy, goofy kind of uh, girl who has this horrible self-image and insecurity and she wanders around and is convinced nobody loves her, nobody cares about her, that nobody really thinks she's special. Well, she ends up going out on this date with Robin Williams because it was fixed up and they go out and, and uh, at the end of the night they had a wonderful time and, and, uh, and she says to him, well, I, I'm not going to invite you up um, because, you know, you'll want to have a cup of coffee, but then you'll, you'll want to stay later. And, be, and besides, nobody really likes me anyway, but thank you so much for this date. And he looks at her and he says, I like you. I love you. And I've watched you. And I know you. And I want to spend time with you. And she looks at him. And it's almost like this situation. John, she puts her hands on his face and she says, are you for real? (laughs) And I would pray that's what we would say. It might not be behold, but when we experience that kind of love, we'd say, are you for real? Can you love me? Do you really know me? And I'm sure at times this condemnation, this guilt, this shame, this insecurity that we all feel causes us at times to think, It's not possible. Are you for real, God, that you would love me that way? 
And so John goes on here in, in, in chapter 2, and you remember the hymn that we sing it? Let me read these words to you. And can it be that I should gain an interest in the Savior's blood who died for me, who caused his pain for me, who him to death pursued? Amazing love, how can it be that thou, my God, should die for me? Those hymns sometimes grab us right where we live and we recognize, God, do you really love me that way? Behold, what great love the Father has lavished upon us. And then he says this in chapter 2. Dear friends, now we are children of God. Now we are children of God. And what we will be has not yet been known. But we know that when Christ appears... We shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. Again, this, this dear friends in the international version is a, a Greek word, agabatai. And it really means my beloved over the top friends. But what John is saying here is, he says that my friends, now we are children of God, yet we're destined for something even greater. He says, and what we will be has not yet been made known, but we know that when Christ appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. And we recognize, not only are you, as John says, not only are we children of God, but we're destined for something. That we have this, this beautiful vision, even as the Bible tells us, that when Christ appears, we shall be like him. Or in 2 Corinthians 3.18, that we are being constantly changed by the Spirit of God and transformed into the glory of God. And as we fellowship with God, as we enter into the relationship with God, as we continually move that dial, so to speak, from 2 to 3 to 4 to 5 and grow in our intimacy, we are being changed. You ever hear it when sometimes couples have been married for a long time and they get older and they start finishing one another's sentences? They even sometimes look like one another, which is really good for the guys, but not so good for the women. That's what John is telling us. He's saying, like, as we grow in our relationship with God, as we grow in our intimacy, as we grow in embracing the truth so that that truth becomes something in our life that allows us to be empathetic and gracious and loving people, we are changed. I know I'm not the same believer I was 50 years ago. And I know that I've had my own behold moments at different times where I've said, God, where else am I going to go? Only you have words of eternal life. And in those moments, I met the grace of God in ways that I knew intellectually, but I didn't know affectionately. And so when John is saying this thing, he says, we're going to be like Jesus. That's what we have to look forward to. That's what Paul means in 2 Corinthians, or it means Philippians chapter 3, verse 10. You remember he says, the only thing I want is I want to know him and the power of his resurrection, and I want to find the fellowship of his sufferings because I want to be like him. You know, in this world that is so crazy, unfortunately, what the world doesn't see, it's Jesus. And sometimes... It's the world because it didn't recognize him and it doesn't recognize us either. But sometimes we don't let Jesus be what we're demonstrating. And more than not, we've heard people say, ah, Jesus I like, it's the church I don't. 
But John is saying, do you want to be changed? Because there's something in our soul that wants more. You know, the Ecclesiastes writer said that God has placed eternity in our hearts. It's why we love the stories of something coming out of nowhere and changing us. I mean, it's, it's really why the Avengers became... Well, forget the Avengers going back. Remember Superman comics? Who didn't love Superman? He came from another planet to rescue us. Who didn't like Sleeping Beauty? Who was raised up out of the doldrums by a beautiful prince with a kiss? I get that every day. Don't misinterpret that, please. Um, or you'd like this more. How about Beauty and the Beast, some of you guys? You met her and your life was transformed. Why do we like those stories? Because every one of those stories is the story of Jesus. Jesus comes from another place to set us free. Jesus comes to bring us the intimacy of a kiss. Jesus turns us beasts into beauties. We look at the mountains and what happens. And all of those stories that I just mentioned to you, they might not be true, but prophetically they are. We look at the mountains and we say, oh my goodness, look at the beauty. And something captures us because we have this vision of God in our hearts. We have not really articulated well, but we know that all the beauty around us, all the stories around us remind us of the greater story that our God has come from heaven, that he would come from high, come for sinful men to die. You count it strange, well, so did I until I met the Savior. That's the beauty of what we're going to be changed. We are destined for glory. We stand in this place as child of, uh, children of God, and we are being changed over and over and over again. Usually we have a, a clock up there in the back. tells us how much time we have left. This morning it's not working, so it says I have 66 minutes left. <laughs> are you in? <laughs> oh boy think of the beauty of it when you became a child of God you were adopted all your debts were paid in the Roman world when a family embraced a young man or a child that child became one who got the inheritance of the family and all the debts were cancelled all the resources necessary to live out the name of the family was given that's who we are it does not yet appear to be. But when he appears, we shall be just like him. We're not only adopted, we have access. Romans 5.2 says, therefore being justified by faith, we have access to God. Hebrews 4 and verse 16 says, let us therefore go boldly to the throne of grace that we might find grace and mercy to help us in our time of need. Behold, what great love the Father has lavished upon us. It is not about the rules. It is about the relationship. It is not to say that we should not live according to the scripture and the principle, but it's the principle of God's love towards us. Why do we forgive? Because God has forgiven us. That's why we forgive. And we begin to live out our life on the basis of the truth. Because God's truth and the nature of God's truth, the nature of God in that truth, the nature of people in that truth, the nature of our world in that truth helps us to make the kind of decisions that live out that truth that brings about freedom in our lives. And so note, notice this, 
truth. Look at verse 3. I mean, I, I, I think about it, and there's so much we could say, and I, and I think that the reality of this and the reality of being destined for this glory is just incredible. Listen to, to what John uh, Flavel said, and I think it, it's up on the screen, maybe not. But it says, the understanding of this vision can know no more. The will can will nothing other. The emotions of joy, delight, and love are all in their proper center. For all good is in his chief good, and all the rivers of the earth come from the ocean. This is Philal. He was a Puritan pastor, and he's writing a commentary on verse 2. He says, as you bring a great ship into a narrow channel, she cannot swim or sail but runs aground. But give it sea room and depth, and she can turn and sail before the wind. So it is here. All the delights you in earthly things can never satisfy you. For all of your desires are in God. The comforts you have here are only drops in flaming that cannot satisfy the appetites of your soul. But the Lamb will lead you to the fountains of living water. Look, one of the problems of our world in terms of the darkness of sin is that we have all kinds of appetites that are not of God. There's an appetite for money. There's an appetite for sex. There's an appetite for uh, certain other things, prestige and, and uh, popularity and, and uh, op- for all kinds of things. And none of those appetites will satisfy the soul because what we're really after is the appetite that only ja- Jesus can satisfy. C.S. Lewis said, if we want something in all of our other passions that hardly can be described in words... We all want something, to be united in the beauty we see, to pass into it, to receive it into ourselves, to bathe in it, to become a part of it. That's why the poets tell us such lovely falsehoods. Who doesn't love a good poem? It might not be historically true, but when we receive it, it brings us to a place we have never could imagine. That's our Jesus. That's what we're destined for. And then he says this in verse 3, and I know we have to move on. Verse 3, all who have this hope in him purify themselves just as he is pure. Again, unfortunate with the international version, it doesn't use the word and, which is a, a conjunction there in the Greek, because he's saying because we're going to be destined, because we're children of God, because we've got a vision of that destined glory, we will we will have hope in him and in him purify ourselves just as he is pure. This hope that we have is because of what Christ has done. And we saw that hope is an anchor for our soul in Hebrews when we went through Hebrews. This hope anchors us to truth. This hope anchors us to the principles. What John has been saying, he says, look, if you believe verse 1, if you believe verse 2, then you will have this anchor for your soul, this hope, and it will cause you to live a life whereby you seek to be purified, you seek to be holy, you seek to be different 
There it is. If we've got the truth, we want to live it out. If we've got the belief, we want to live it out in the behavior. And that hope that we live each and every day is what allows us to live in our victory because the victory is ours in Christ. This hope is hope in Christ, not our hope in Christ, but the hope that is Christ, as Colossians 1.27 tells us. He says that Christ in us is our hope of glory because he who had victory over the enemy, over the world, over the flesh, has given us that victory, and we are his children. And if we live out as his children, understanding that love, letting that love that is stronger than death, the Song of Solomon says, we too will live out a victorious life. That's the gospel. That's what sets our minds free. That's what calls us to love the unlovely. That's what calls us to be a people who weep for those who might be evil. Too often we're against them, but we don't weep for them. When Hitler died, think about it, Jesus wept. He also wept when Hitler killed all those people. Because whether we like it or not, Hitler was made in the image of God. And the sad part is he never embraced the gift that God provided for all of the world. Do we weep for lost people? Or do we just make them the enemy because they're different than us? If I read this, behold, I want to be like Jesus. I want to be like John. I want to have the kind of heart and mind and attitude that goes after those that have turned away. No matter what the cost might be, how great, how bold, How beautiful, behold, the love the Father has lavished upon us that we might be sons of God. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we come with hearts that are just moved by your beauty and by the power of your word. And we pray, God, that we would come to experience truth, God is not to say that there's not a battle in front of us. But the truth is what sets us free to fight the battle. Because we've already died in Christ. And we're not afraid to give our life. So Father, there might be people here this morning. Maybe they're here for the first time. They don't even know if they believe in God. But Lord, there's nothing else that makes sense to believe in. If I don't believe in God, what do I believe in? And whatever it is that I believe in doesn't make any rational sense when it comes to loving one another. For the only thing I'm left with is survival of the fittest. So, Father, thank you for the rationale of Scripture that helps us to live a life of freedom and victory. And helps us to continue to grow in obedience towards the things that Scripture teaches us. If you're here and you don't know Jesus, but you've been a churchgoer a lot of your life, would you take the moment here to put your faith in Jesus? It's not faith and faith that we talk about. It's faith in the death, burial, and resurrection for you. And you must be born again. 
That's what John is teaching us. There is an event. God wants you to participate in that event and receive him as your savior. Lord Jesus, come into my life would be your prayer and teach me how to live free and full of joy and walk in truth that I might be destined for glory. Thanks for listening. We hope this encourages you to dive deeper into your relationship with God through prayer, scripture, worship, and community. We hope you can join us on Sunday mornings at 9.30. For more information, go to sisterschurch.com. Be blessed, friends.